Welcome to episode 156 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today we're going to talk about a leak and a spill at the Imperial, Imperial Oil's Curl Oil Sands plant. The leak occurred in May of 2022, but the local Indigenous communities and the public only learned about it in late, gen well, in January 2023, because there was a 5.3 million liter spill of industrial wastewater at the same site. So as you can imagine, this has garnered a lot of criticism and a lot of public attention, national attention, and it's raised once again the issue, uh, the serious issues about how the regulator, the Alberta Energy Regulator, actually regulates the industry. There's, I've done, you can listen to uh, an Energy Talks po podcast interview with uh, Professor Jason McLean. We talked about the AER being a captured regulator. I've done some other interviews with experts about the uh, bill specifically. But today we're going to talk to Je uh, Jenny Yeremy, who's a professional geophysicist and a life cycle management developer. And she has 22 years of experience in the oil sands industry working under the AER's rules. So welcome to the interview, Jenny. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, Mark. And thank you for your time. Well, you know, I've talked to plenty of experts, people, you know, academics like uh, Professor McLean and uh, Martin Olashinsky from the University of Calgary, Drew Uchuk, public interest lawyer at the University of Calgary. But I've also heard uh, privately from a surprising number of people who are working in the industry, working in oil sands and coming into contact with the regulator. And they say, Markham, you're on the right track. There's absolutely no question that the, the AER is captured. Uh, some practices, you know, that shouldn't go on, do go on, et cetera. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to you because of your experience in the industry, and you've got some ideas for reforming it that we'll talk about later in the in the interview. But let's start at the very uh, high level, because you've been interviewed by some national newspapers and, and commented on this. What's your take on the leak and the spill and the performance of the AER in this context? So um, I guess where I can offer, I want to be clear of my my expertise. So I started in the industry in 2000. I was a geophysicist for five years as a processor, and then for seven years as an interpreter. And then I joined a startup company in 2012. And from there, I, I expanded my, my knowledge base um, to become more of a robust leader of the industry. And then in 2014, I joined the startup company where we were looking to um, not only look at profit, but to make sure that we were considering people and, and the environment as well in the work we were doing. That led me to the last opportunity I was in, which was at Canadian Natural. And um, with the federal funds that were injected for the um, stimulus package to clean up the oil and gas sites, I moved into a role, a liability management specialist role at CNRO, and that is my first experience with the oil sands. So I need to be clear that I do not have um, decades of experience in that. So, but what I can offer is last year, I participated in the MFSB review. So the MFSB is the Mine Financial Security Program review. And at the beginning of last year, we were given the mandate to focus on um, asset value. So 
Um, I'll, I'll simply say the MFS, MFSB has four uh, levers in it. So the first is to take upfront security. The second, um, I mean, these aren't in necessarily order, but um, and next is to, there was an, a price factor that um, if the prices went off the rails, this, this program would trigger security. And um, there's one for long-term, you know, once you start getting to the end of life, that triggers security. And then lastly, where there was this asset to liability ratio that was also intended to capture security. So with all of those levers, we currently hold less than a billion dollars worth of security um, in the government. And in 2021, um, there was a, uh, I, we don't know the specifics, but the government um, made an announcement that they were relaxing one of the rules that is the one that was based on price because of the sudden drop in prices that happened in 2020, it should have triggered um, security from a couple of oil sands facilities. Again, don't know the specifics of that. And it, rather than doing that, um, the government and regulator just said, we'll just change the rule. So I think that's a really good example of a place where um, we're not, we're not we, we have these great rules, you know, as Marcus pointed out, but we don't, enforce them right um and and i would say that's that's there's a fundamental reason why i believe we're there which is we value development over valuing liability or the impact on people so until we fix that we're going to continue doing this this challenge so to me i would back up the bus and say this starts with the LOR program, which is the licensee liability ratio program that was built in 2000. To me, that the that program itself has, has come up against it a couple of times before, you know, this incident, which really show the inability for when push comes to shove for the regulator and our government to step in. Right. And then and that's a point that's raised raised often is that the you know the goalposts move according to the whims of the industry. If the industry feels that it needs something, the, the government or the AER is quite accommodating of industry, regardless of what the implications are for the treasury, for for the environment, for you know, if if it increases risk to local indigenous communities, well, you know, profitability is considered to be a higher priority. Than, than those other criteria. criteria. Right. So, so sorry, sorry, I can keep, I just wanted to elaborate on the NFSP review. So, um, as I said, we were focused on asset value. So, the idea, you know, being that the liabilities are not something we're going to discuss in this review. So, you know, me being new to the oil sands, I assumed that there was a, a good reason for that, right? wasn't aware that the liabilities that are in the formula are one-fifth of the actual liabilities that are estimated by the AER itself. So okay, the hang on a second then that's a that's a key point. So you're sitting around the table and you're finding out this information. And we know uh I believe that the AERs, I've seen two, I've seen a couple of numbers. One is uh 28 billion and and the other is 30 or 31 billion. That's the total cost of remediating the tail sands. Uh, sorry, the oil sands tailing spots. And now you're saying that that's actually one fifth of the real total. Uh, do I understand? Sorry, that the, there. It's my understanding that there's a thirty billion dollar assumption 
in the oil sands facility in the MFSP calculations, not the um, $130 billion estimate. Okay, where did the $130 billion estimate come from? So there is, um, in 2018, there was a presentation that was done by the AER internally that um, has been published. Um, it's public. And um, in there, it breaks down the liabilities in the industry into two parts. It has the um, mines, actually in three parts. It's got the mines as one, which is this um, $130 billion estimate. And they, it shows in this document that there is with the estimate that's currently being used, that's you know, been presented is only 30. And then um, similarly on the conventional um, side, the estimate that's being used to calculate security is $30 billion. When in actuality, if you add in, they've got those line items for pipelines. Um, and then the real estimate for the liabilities takes that to the 130. So those are the two estimates that are that are create that are understood by the AER. Yet the mechan the two security programs that we have in place to well, and actually the LOR has been moved away, and we can get into that. But the um, the, the MFSP still is using this thirty billion dollar estimate to calculate security. Which to me, if that is um, that is something that you know, as somebody in the industry who's participating in this exercise, that would have been valuable. Okay, just uh, for folks who aren't as familiar with this industry, uh, this issue as you and I are. So the AER itself uh, pegs the cost of reclaiming all of the assets in the oil sands industry. And that includes 37 of these gigantic tailings ponds that together contain 1.4 trillion liters of toxic tailings. They, they, they say it's 130 billion, but the number that they publish is 30 billion. And the amount that they've actually collected in security, money in the bank to, against these liabilities, is I, I've seen figures of 900 million to 1.4 billion. So whether yeah, which what, doesn't matter which one you take, it's still a pittance uh, compared to 30 billion, and it's just a speck on the wall uh, if if we're talking 130 billion. And the assumption, as I understand it, behind the MFSP is that every one of the oil sands plants, the assets that are under development now, I think there's 22 of them, um, will go, they will extend to the entire life of the resource. So that particular Correct. project, and yeah. you know when, when, it, when they develop an oil sands project, this is not like an oil and gas reservoir where you, you're sticking wells here and there and every, to draw down the resource. It's more like a, it's more like a mine. It's a definable area that has X amount of barrels of bitumen in it. And that's the resource that they get the license to, to uh, exploit. And it, it contains, I don't know, you know, a billion barrels or half a billion barrels or whatever it is. So the assumption is that these will go to 2030, 2040, 2050, 2060, whatever the life of that resource is, and there will be enough revenue in there to eventually reclaim all the tailings ponds and the other and the other the big plant that does the processing and the pipelines and all the other infrastructure. The problem of course is this might have flown in 1990 or 2000, maybe even in 2010. 
But in 2023, we understand that for the first time, and we're going through an energy transition where the world is switching over to electricity, uh, essentially to power transportation, uh, if uh, never mind some of the other applications. And, if, you know, forecasters like the Alberta, uh, sorry, the International Energy Agency are are pegging, you know, peak oil demand, global peak oil demand at 2030 with a decline after that. And so one of two things is going to happen. Uh, either the they will, you know, the oil sands will still have market, but prices will be a lot lower and, and profit margins will be a lot lower if there are profit margins. Or some of these projects just can't compete. And and then they right. have to, you know, they'll be shut in and, and withdrawn. And this could happen well before the uh, the projected life of the resource. And so if there's if there's no uh, security taken against that eventuality, then the only person left, the only group hold, left holding the bag, ready to write the check or, or forced to write the check is the taxpayer. Correct. And if yeah, we're to, so I, I, have I got this essentially correct, Jenny? Yeah, I mean, the way I would describe it in, in simple terms is we're using the collateral of the entire resource against the, the liability. And that, like you say, assumes we can produce that entire resource and see the economic benefit of that resource to cover the costs. And we know from the LOR program um, that we've been up against that. We've, we've come to the point where the asset value meets the liability value, and we have not been able to get security. Why? Because, go ahead. The, the LOR, I mean, we need to, again, now we're talking conventional oil here. And so there has to be an, an, uh, a liability to asset ratio of two, at least two uh, for conventional producers before they're required to post security. Is that correct? Well, so that was the case. So this is where, you know, you talked about the moving fence post. So actually the initial um, use of the LOR, it was a one-to-one -one ratio. So the idea was that a company would, that, that the, we would determine the asset value um, using a formula. Now keep in mind, this is a, a linear formula. You know, we have a very dynamic, we've watched oil prices go up and down and, and gas prices for that matter, go up and down between you know, 2000 when this initial draft was made and today, yet we've used a linear formula to calculate the asset value. So that's the first problem. Then the second problem is, as we've discussed, we're using a liability value that's much smaller than in actuality. So when we come, we've seen this twice now, right? In, in 2018, we had companies come up against it from the 2008 crash of gas prices. And then in 2014, we saw, you know, companies be up against it when oil prices dropped out. And the reality of the situation is that there are other, other costs at play that come in when you are, you come to that place, you know, if your asset, it's not like somebody can just turn over the keys, stop paying everything. And so this is the fundamental issue with the way we're taking security. It's, we use one program, we've watched it fail. And we're still applying that same design in the oil sense. Yeah. And just for some clarification. Um, so essentially what you're saying is when prices go down, then the, the liability to asset ratio changes. And essentially it, it should trigger 
uh, it should trigger uh, the AER to require live uh, security from some of these operators. And instead, what the, the AER does is change the rules in order to keep these companies alive. Now, there are let's there are three general classes of producers. So there's the juniors, which are the very small producers, ten thousand barrels a day or less. And then there's the intermediates, which I think goes up to a hundred thousand barrels a day. And then you have the very large companies like the Suncor and the CNRL that you work for and Synovus. There's five or six of them uh, that are the the Canadian majors. And the problem here is, and I, I did an interview with, I think it's the Security and Exchange Commission in Alberta. Uh, in 2018, they put out a report and it noted that in a few years earlier, there had been uh, 230 roughly junior producers. And then when I did the report, was, uh, did the interview with them, there was only 80 left. A number of those companies had either gone bankrupt or they had been uh, bought by other producers. And now I understand that the, even more junior producers have failed. And this is where those assets, those conventional assets, uh, you know, the, uh, the light oil, uh, are be that's why they're uh, becoming orphan wells or they're inactive wells, is because these companies have failed. And the, the AER, in an attempt to, to uh, uh, delay a crisis, I guess, if all of these companies failed and threw thousands of wells, uh, uh, you know, suddenly there's thousands and thousands and thousands more in the Orphan Well Association or they're inactive. They, they've just, they bent the rules and they they extend them out to keep these zombie companies basically alive, as I understand it. So this is a way that the, you know, the AER is, again, moving the goalpost to help conventional companies, smaller companies, help the industry uh, during a period of you know difficult transition and, and failure on, on some of these companies. But the principle is the same. The principle is the same. The rules are designed uh, to try to provide some kind of security for the public interest, to protect the public interest. And then they get the rules get bent when the markets change, prices change, and suddenly there's the the system that they've designed doesn't work anymore. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, I, I need to say there are tremendous people in, in the AER and in um, the Department of Energy and, and the Department of Environment, or the uh, Alberta Environment, um, that are trying to do the right thing in the industry, right? We are trying to hold people accountable. The challenge we have is the, like, you know, I, there's, this is where I would say I disagree to some level with, with Mark and, and, um, and others that say that we have the greatest rules. Yes, we have components that are great, but fundamentally, the, the fact that we have separated development and asset retirement has led us to failures over and over again. And so until we fix that issue, then there's no there's no power in the the AER to to address these issues because we wait for catastrophe and then we we can't fix it, right? So to me, we have to we have to change our approach to to address liabilities to, you know, you talked to, we opened with this 5,200 cubic meters of of leak at the MFSP, we need to look at this as it's not just about this 5,200 
uh, cubic meters. It's about the 1.4 trillion um, that are sitting out there and what are the implications of this so that we can address this problem to using this, this you know, tiny dropping of a glass, let's say, and to address this massive issue out there. We can't use an MFSP program. And, and the thing that is, is disturbing to me is that last year participating in this, knowing now that in May of last year, there was a leak at, at Curl and none of us were made aware of it, or at least I wasn't. And I know others that have participated in that were not either. So we aren't addressing the liability that's occurring in the moment, let alone trying to address this, this 1.4 trillion liters and, and the estimated 130 billion. Right. And, and I think that, you know, this has been made, a uh, point has been made in other interviews that I've done on this topic, which is that the AER is not full of, you know, evil people twirling their mustaches and thinking of how to screw the, the general public out of it. These are, you know, many of them are, the majority of them, most of them, all of them, let's even say, are well-intentioned, they're experienced, they're competent, they're bright, they're all of those things. Uh, this is not an attack on AER uh, professionals. The system is poorly designed from the very top. And it begins with the assumption that the first priority of regulation is development and profit. Right. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then other, and then other li uh, priorities such as asset, li uh, uh, asset retirement, uh, environmental liabilities, uh, the day-to-day -day regulation of the, of the industry are all subsumed under that priority. So Correct. that the so so that the question becomes if there's a leak, if there's a if there's an asset that needs to be retired, it, you know it, it all of it quite it's seen through the lens of industry profitability, not public interest, and that by very definition is that's what you call regulatory capture when the industry's interests come before the public interest, even some of the time, not all the time, not a hundred percent of the time, but some of the time, then it becomes regulatory capture. And Alberta has designed this into its regulatory system decades ago. This didn't happen yesterday. It's not a, a particular government. You know, the PCs did it. And then the NDP, uh, when, when they were in power for four years from 2015 to 19, they didn't do anything about it. The UCP hasn't done anything about it. And they're so pro-industry, it's not they'll never do anything about it, uh, in my opinion. Um, so... But now you, and in fairness, you know, full disclosure here, I, I invited you in, on because you're a professional, you've worked in the industry, and you've got some really good insights into it. But you're also a candidate for the Alberta Party. So let's be up, up front about that. And you have taken to your the party uh, your solution for this. And so I think it's fair because, uh, frankly, I don't run across a lot of people who are talking about what the solution is. This is unusual. Right. So let's I'd like to hear what your what you think is the solution to this to this problem. Okay. So yeah, I would need to start with I've been leading the um the platform development for the Alberta Party uh, with a group of individuals. And we've had representation from forestry, the AER, Indigenous um, participation, energy professionals such as myself, the aviation industry, and and the electric industry. So, you know, this is been a collaborative effort, um, but to me, it, it. So I'm going to back up and offer what what sort of epiphany I had last spring. You know, I sent this to you as a teaser in advance of this, but I 
was looking at, uh, I took a complex decision-making course and it explained that you have to define your problem space. So initially I was looking at liability within the company of, of CNRL where I was at. And I thought, okay, this is an interdepartmental issue. Okay, no, it's not. It's a industry-wide issue. No, it's a, it includes the regulator. It includes um, government. It includes stakeholders. So really what we're talking about is a everyone problem. And that's really what is the, to me, the fundamental issue here is um, we need to think more holistically. And so I'm, I'm going to suggest that we need to return, we need to look at life cycle management. So rather than looking at just the industry itself and what it takes for us, the cost analysis of what it takes to develop a program, we have to look at the inputs into that. And so, you know, so let me be specific. We want to do a um, blue hydrogen project, okay? And we want to use it doing with natural gas, generated with natural gas. So that requires us to drill a natural gas well. At this day and age, it requires us to frack. And currently we're using fresh water to frack. It requires steel for us to drill that well and place casing. It requires steel for us to um, build pipelines that tie into that um, infrastructure. We need a facility to support it. Then we're doing carbon capture on that facility and we're producing hydrogen. So that's the entire life cycle when I talk about that. That's what I mean. So we can't just look at right now when we do economics in the industry, we look at we need, you know, X amount of this is the drilling cost, this is the pipeline typing tying cost, this is our production cost. There we go. That and you know, it's a 30-year project, so yay, it's successful. Let's go. Well, the challenge with that is we're we're in an we're in a crisis. We're in an energy crisis, and and we're we're talking only about emissions. So from my point of view, that we are not just up against it in terms of emissions. We have to think about other factors. We have water that needs to sustain us. We have land use that is over overused, overexploited, and we have to think about the resource how those resources are coming into our system. Um, you know, we, we, where are we getting all of this steel to do this work and, and what other industries are competing with us for those resources? So, so our solution to me is we have to think more holistically. We need to get to a place where we, number one, these conversations cannot happen with industry, the government and, um, the AER alone. We need to open this up to the public. We need to make Data sharing needs to be considered a commodity, not something to hold tightly. That is, and that's actually something over the last 10 years that we've really eroded in this province is due to the drop in oil prices we saw in 2014, we have out of fear pulled back and stopped sharing. And that has hurt us. We've gotten to a place now where it is, we have people that are, you know, quite, quite angry because we don't understand the problem. We're not being fair to that. So to me, it's first thing is who we got to open this up with everyone. This should be public information. You know, this, this leak at, at curl, we should all be aware of what it is, what it means for the other oil sands and what it means for the long-term stability of our ecosystem. So who, oh, go ahead. Well, I, I want to come get, get in on the communication here because when the leak was discovered and, and there's two releases here, okay, there's the leak uh, and then there's the the spill, the big spill. It's two different things. 
in the, very close to each other, same site, very close to each other, but two separate incidents. And on the spill, the local indigenous communities never learned for nine months. So, but when it happened, the AER uh, issued an environmental protection order to uh, Imperial Oil and said, you have to include a communications plan. So they did. And then the Imperial Oil just didn't do it. Don't know why they didn't do it. They still haven't provided an explanation. They just apologized and went on a little bit of a tour to the northern indigenous communities up, you know, northern Alberta. And and, and there hasn't really been an explanation for why. But the other explanation, the other explanation that hasn't been asked for is why the AER never followed up. Like if you if you issue an, an EPO and then you say you have to have a communications plan, surely somewhere in the in the bowels of the AER. Uh, a, a bureaucrat is looking at that and going, okay, I got a checklist here. Let's make sure that these guys did this and they did that. Oh, and by the way, that they communicated with the various communities that live in, you know, within uh, adjacent to the curl. And nobody did that either. And nobody's calling them on the carpet for that. But it, it, uh, the point I really want to get at is aside from some, some communication from the company early on, you know, like about two weeks ago, they just stopped. There's nothing on the AAR website. There's no press releases. They're not getting granting interviews. The company had, you know, pr provided on March 6th, I think, was the last uh, uh, notice that it provided on its website about what it was doing. And then they just stopped communicating. And they don't grant interviews. And they don't talk to anybody. They don't release data. They don't, they don't do any of that. It all takes place in a black box up in northern Alberta where nobody can see what's going on. And the only reason we have a little bit of insight into it is because the the uh, the Miskew uh, Cree Nation and the Athabascan uh, Athabasca uh, uh, First uh, the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. Sorry, uh, folks. Uh, you know their chiefs are are pretty upset about this, and so they share information that they get. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't know. And this is a really big, serious issue. Oh, and I should also mention that until the federal government got involved through the Environment and Cli uh, Climate Change Canada, uh, Minister Stephen Gobeau, you know, the Alberta government was just went, oh, yeah, we've been briefed. Uh, it's no problem. Uh, you know, it didn't get into any, none of the, the leak got into waterways, we're told. So, you know, nothing to see here, folks, move on. Oh, then the federal government gets involved. Now there's going to be an inquiry or a commission. There's the government's going to work together with local stakeholders in the company. It ought not to be like this. And and I have to ask, I have to ask, if it's like this with a big spill that gets a lot of national attention and a lot of what in the world goes on on you know lesser stuff that is still serious but doesn't get that kind of public attention. And because what you're telling me, if I can read between the lines, is, you know, there's 22 of these projects and there's probably this kind of stuff going on all the time. But how would we know? Yeah, so to me, the the challenge is, is we don't have solutions, right? This is fundamentally what it is, is we need our leaders in industry and in the government to say, we don't, we've screwed up here. This is, yeah, it's not just a 5,200 cubic meter problem. This is a 1.4 trillion cubic meter problem. It's a systemic and we don't problem. Have a, it's a systemic problem. Yeah, that's right. And so I think it's, it's out of fear, right? We, we, and quite honestly, we haven't had to, 
right? This is, you know, again, when you talk about capture, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't, I don't like weighing in on those specifics, but I look at if the AER doesn't have the, the backing from our government, the government that is supposed to be looking after the people of Alberta, including our Indigenous communities, if they don't have that, what power do they have? And that, that's fundamentally what I think is breaking down here. And, and unfortunately, Albertans have been electing and re-electing this, this um, lack. We don't ask for it. As Albertans, we're letting, we're re-electing and, and basically saying thank you for not worrying about our environment and not worrying about us, right? We're, we're putting prior, um, profitability above people and, and our, our livelihoods. Right. And and I don't know this. Uh, we haven't interviewed the AER, They're not giving out interviews. And uh, but one of the experts that I interviewed, it might have been Jason McLean, made the point that the AER does answer in some respect to the Department of Alberta Department of Energy and the Alberta Department of Energy answers to the minister, which answers to the to the premier and to cabinet. So if the government of the day, the political party running the, the government uh, that formed the government uh, is captured by the industry and is so you know pro-industry and doesn't want to have any shackles put on the industry or any unnecessary costs, then that trickles down to the department, which trickles down to the AER. And, the, yeah. and, and, and it, it basically hobbles the AER, even if the AER was well-intentioned and wanted to enforce every rule to the to you know the the best that it possibly could, it doesn't have the support from those players and decision makers above it. And right. it sounds like you would agree with that. Yeah, and I would add that you know there is a, a third aspect to this is the regulations, as we've talked about, they're the best regulations in the world. You know, this is the suggestion, and the challenge with that is they're not actionable. So this is where we break down is the industry, I'll be specific. You know, we have, you know, Mark's talked about this. We have surface case and vent flow issues on wells, right? So that is, we have um, leaks from the surface casing. So there isn't a bond in the cement that's, a, that's preventing gas leaks from, from formations in the ground. And so it's coming to atmosphere, right? So these are, this is methane and other GHG gases that are leaking from the system. And we have a, a an industry-wide non-compliance in that space. So what do you do when you're a regulator and nobody is compliant? Now what do you do? Right? So this is where right. we we need the government to and and industry well, you know, I've 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 been on the side of industry where we're trying to work with the regulator to say these rules are not um, operable. And, and therefore we're going to continue to fail and therefore you have a hard job to do, right? So this is, it is, it's a, it, the, the challenge we have is this issue needs to be, it's systematic it, and, it, and it includes all of us and we all need to take a step back and, and change the priorities of what we're trying to accomplish. We cannot just be focused on profits. We need to think about people in the environment that are impacted. Here's a scenario I want to raise for listeners. So Wood McKenzie, which is an international consulting firm, very highly respected, and uh, they issued last year, they they sent out a report 
And it basically said, okay, we think that peak oil is going to occur. Peak oil demand is going to occur in 2030. Then there'll be some bumpy plateau for a while. And then we'll start to see the decline in uh, global consumption sometime during the, the 2030s. What does that mean for oil and gas companies? Well, what it means is that the next seven to 10 years are going to be incredibly profitable. I mean, we saw last year, I think the, the total Alberta oil and gas profits were like $35 billion. I mean, it was a huge amount of, of profit generated. What did they do with it? They gave most of it back to shareholders who live out, 75% of them live outside of Canada. They give it back to them in the form of higher dividends and share buybacks. Okay, so the, here the point that Wood McKenzie is making is you basically big oil companies like Sonovus and the, they have seven to ten years to take the 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 prop the high profits that they're going to have and to invest them in low carbon economy so they can make a transition so they still have a business model as oil consumption begins to drop but in Canada in Alberta particularly that has there's another uh, implication here which is that there are only seven to 10 years where oil companies will be profitable enough to address their environmental liabilities. After that, once their profitability drops, they are not, they are, if they're under a pressure to, to give back profits now, like, like free cash flow to shareholders now, what will it be like in 10 years when that starts to drop and their margins get, get tighter? So if it isn't addressed in seven to 10 years, then the companies are not likely to address it. The, the, the tailings ponds, the big, the big liabilities we're talking about. So there is some urgency here. Now that scenario might not play out, but it's it's likely enough that big companies, you know, companies like Wood McKenzie think that it will play out, that Alberta should stand up and, and pay attention to this. Yes. So to be quite frank, this is why I'm running. Like, you know, I heard um Mandy talk about her um Mandy Olsgaard, oh, yes, right. who you interviewed, thank you, um, speak about her efforts in industry. You know, uh, somebody like me who has the the wherewithal to help um, come to solutions, like you said, and we got into a little bit of that, um, don't feel welcome. You know, so I feel, I felt compelled to to go to government because to me, this is, the government is supposed to be looking after the people of Alberta, not the companies. I, I, I want I want to interrupt you, Jennifer. Sorry, but uh, but the you made a comment that just can't go uh, unnoticed, and that is I didn't feel welcome. Right. Yeah. Tell, tell and, me about that. Tell me about how in meetings with the regulator, meetings with the company, uh, your concerns about wanting to uh, improve this situation, you were not made feel to feel welcome. Right. So um, let me be specific. So like I said, I was moved into this role that, um, for, for the $1.7 billion that was injected into the industry to do. So so again, that's across Alberta, BC and Saskatchewan. And the goal was to update the policies and regulations to ensure that we are on target to deal with the liabilities. Okay? So first and foremost, there was no team attached to me. I was an individual. And my only source of uh, support was a person I was meant to replace. So right there, you know, there was a there was a conflict. Every day was a conflict because I was looking to change, and this is someone who has you know um, been been doing the same work for for decades. Secondly, there was a group of individuals, and we'll call it two hundred people, in a neighboring department 
that didn't have leadership with respect to these the, the money being issued into the uh, from the federal funds. And so I stepped into a leadership role without any authority to do so. And it, you know, it led to come um, June of last year, I was, um, you know, I presented at the GEO convention of my idea of lifecycle management and how we need to be more holistic in our thinking. And a week later, I was written up. Um, I had a, there was a three page document that told me that I was combative and that I don't um, communicate, which is not true. I had a, every two weeks I was meeting with people and providing documented information of what I did. And then the response was, um, I said, so I disagree with this. What do I do with it? And I was told it was non-negotiable. So I pled constructive dismissal and I left and I can speak about this today because guess what? They denied that. They they, you know, like came back and said, no, you weren't constructively dismissed. So I don't know how I can be effective in an organization when, you know, I try to offer solutions. And I, you know, and the one thing I said in the, in the discussion, which I'm proud of, is I said, no, I'm not the problem here. I'm trying to offer solutions. Liability is the problem, right? And I'm just trying to help us look more long-term and be realistic about what's coming back at us because you know we haven't spoken about the working well program yet but industry you know you mentioned briefly there there are actually only just over 5000 sites that are deemed orphan we have over 30 or 33000 sites in alberta only 5000 are orphan truly orphan the rest are in the hands of industry and so, you know, the, this goal, it, it's, it's karma at its, at, that's the expectation is that at the end of the day, the orphan program will sit with these, with these owners. And I have to add, the government has not supported industry in this. And I need to be fair to CNRL in that they have tried to get the government to use their teeth in terms of holding not only companies, but individuals accountable to their dropping of liability into the hands of, 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 of industry companies that are still standing, right? Right, so, and, and I just want to jump in here because one right. of the one of the, the points that's been made to me in other in other interviews is that the big companies uh, the big companies approach this differently. I mean, big the big companies like Sonova, CNRL, and and Suncor and Imperial Oil. You know, they take this. They take their obligation seriously. They put a lot of money back into into well reclamation, and it's. But there's a lot of players, especially smaller players, who are the pro, who are a big problem, and they're a problem for the industry because you know the industry has to contribute to the Orphan Well Association to rehabilitate to, to reclaim these these uh, orphan wells, which are basically the company's gone bankrupt or whatever, and 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 there's nobody around to to reclaim them. So that the Orphan Well Association contracts to do it uh, using these levies that are provided by by other industry uh, companies in the industry, uh, and so whether whether it's CNRL, whether it's the AER, whether it's the Department of Industry uh, of Energy, uh, whether it's Cabinet, clearly the system is dysfunctional. That that I think is the takeaway here. The, the system is dysfunctional now. And some of the dysfunction shows up on when there's an incident, like there was up at Curl, and some of the, but most of the dysfunction is hidden 
between this relationship between the AER and the and the company or the AER and the Department of Energy and and cabinet. And it's out of it's not uh, it's it's away from the eyes of the public and from others who might be able to, you know, like academics and so on. But it's clearly we're headed for a cliff. And if if the system isn't reformed at some point, then the taxpayer is going to be stuck with a big bill at the end of the day, tens, perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars. It would bankrupt the province of Alberta for sure if that happened and the federal government would have to step in. So, and the industry has is, is, uh, wanted to punt some of these issues like tailings ponds reclamation. They punted it down the road in, in, in um, oh, I forget the date now, Directive 74. Uh, I think it was 2008 was issued. We're going to get these uh, tailings ponds reclaimed and get it done. Well, they couldn't find a cost-effective solution. So then they 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 didn't enforce Directive 74. They issued Directive 85 a couple of years ago. That's not being enforced. And and, and on and on it goes. I mean, this is just how how things get put off and put off and put off. And there's never any, any uh, uh, concrete action and money invested in fixing the problem. So... Uh, Jenny, this has been great. You, you've you've given us a lot of insight into how the system works and how it doesn't work and how it's dysfunctional, and uh, and some ideas on how it needs to be changed. And I I wish that this kind of public discussion and the controversy that's around the curl leak and spill would lead to change. To be honest, I'm I'm not I'm not optimistic. And maybe we'll close the interview by: Are you optimistic that they're you know in a reasonable period of time? In the, you know, in the next little while, there might be some serious reform of the Alberta oil and gas regulatory regime. Yeah, I mean, I am an optimist and I wouldn't be running if I didn't think that uh, there were solutions today. So I need to, before we close, I have to talk about the sub-regional plans. So last year in April, the um, government passed two sub-regional plans, which are in East Joe Lake and um, Cold Lake. They, to me, are sustainable development plans that Alberta should use to move forward in this province. It includes not only oil and gas. So we need to back up the bus for a moment and realize that this isn't just an oil and gas industry issue. This is industries. And that this what this, this sub-regional plans includes forestry. It includes the electrical grid. It includes oil and gas um, development. And... It includes stakeholders. So to me, again, I got back to education and training. We have to accept that there are other people that have um, that have input into the way the industry is running, and we need to include Indigenous communities for primarily to move forward. So I would say that is, if we can do that first, we're going to move forward in a big way. And the, the pieces that are missing from this plan are residential planning and agriculture. But I think once we get those pieces in, we have a sustainable development plan for Alberta in place. It's 10 years in the making between industry and government and the regulator. We need to start actually implementing that. I think that is the path forward. It has, it moves sites forward on closure timelines. It would make us be proactive and it would get us going. So yes, I'm absolutely optimistic that we have a very um, good solution today. And I'm glad you're optimistic. I'm going to be uh, more cynical and say that this sounds a lot like the past. 
the future sounds like a lot like the past because now instead of having good regulations, we have a good plan and it all depends on implementation, which has been the, the failure in the past. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jenny, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate it.